Father in heaven, uh, as we think of these concerns, uh, Pastor Yulia and his family and the loss of their home, please provide for all their needs. Um, Help their son to heal from the jump that he had to make. And also we pray for Lisa's uh, sister and her recovery from sickness. There's so many other requests that we could bring to you too, but um, we know that they're all in your heart as much as, and even more than they are in ours. And so we trust you with their results. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And also, Lord, we pray for wisdom and guidance. You said if we lack wisdom, ask and you'll give. And so we ask and we believe that you'll give us wisdom today as we open your word. In Jesus' name, amen. One of probably the most horrifying things that a parent can face is the thought or the reality especially, of losing um, a child to a kidnapping, being abducted. It's just a horrible thought to think about. In February, just a a month ago, a 13-year-old was on an online gaming platform and was chatting with somebody else that she was playing the game with, and he ended up luring her away. She left her house, ran away, met him just a little ways away from the house. He ended up being a 33-year-old guy, lived 900 miles away from her in Georgia. He took her from Kansas to Georgia, and she realized real quick that she would rather be at home. And after several days, she was able to access a computer and send her mom a note with the address of a Dollar General store that was nearby, and the police came picked her up there, ended up picking up him up on March 1st, and now he's awaiting trial. I don't want you to imagine what that girl was thinking or feeling or experiencing. What I want you to imagine is what the mom was experiencing. Do you think that her mom was uh, just doing life as normal, um, maybe checking your phone every once in a while to see if there is a message? I don't think so. I think that she turned her life upside down to find her 13-year-old girl. Uh, I bet she didn't go to work for a few days um, or weeks as she was trying to find her little daughter and rescue her. Uh, She probably went through every social media account that she could find of her daughter trying to look for clues, probably called all her friends and neighbors and anybody that she could imagine that might have some connection to her daughter to find where her daughter might be. She called the police right away, uh, tried to get them involved, was probably bugging them. I don't know, Brandon, if you've ever experienced that, but um, probably bugging the police, trying to make sure they were doing their job and, uh, and feeling like they weren't doing enough. I bet she raised money to try to to provide a reward or something. Like anything that was possible that she could do, she changed her life completely to rescue her daughter, to bring her back. And that's the phrase that I want you to keep in your mind as we talk about this Bible subject today, bring her back. And that's, that's what the Bible is really talking about when it uses words like redeem, ransom, reconcile. These are bring her back words. And I imagine that they have just as much emotion and intensity and desire and grit and determination as that mom had in her desire to bring her daughter back. We've got a problem. The world has, uh, world ha- has uh, been totally changed from God's design. It was created with beauty. Everything was new. Nobody had made any mistakes. Nothing was wrong. The people were naive. 
They didn't know a lot yet. But there was this evil creature on the hunt for a victim. And so the young woman stood in front of a tree with this intriguing snake luring her, talking to her, deceiving her. And uh, and after only a few minutes of conversation, uh, he had deceived her, and she took the first step in rebellion against God. She took that step. Just like the girl took the step away from her home to meet up with this guy. She made that choice, but um, it wasn't a good choice, and the result wasn't good. That, was, that choice entrapped her, imprisoned her. The first lady of the human race ran away. That's essentially what happened. Now, I don't want you to imagine what might have been happening or going on in her mind to that uh, young lady who made that bad choice. What I want you to imagine is what her daddy was doing what the creator was doing when he realized his daughter had run away. Do you think it was life is normal? Heaven just did the same things that heaven always did? I don't think so. What happened in that moment of rebellion tore his children away from him, imprisoned them in this evil being's clutches. God was not going to stand by and just let that happen. He was going to do everything in his power to fix the problem. And you can, find, you can find what happened in Isaiah 59 too. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Sin separates us from God. It pulls us away from him. And he doesn't like that word, separation. He, he doesn't like the idea of being separate. It's not a word that he likes because he's the God of being everywhere. He created us to be with him. Psalm 139, 7 to 10 says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol or in the grave, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. And in Jeremiah 23, 24, Jeremiah says, well... Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? Declares the Lord. Do I lift, do I not fill heaven and earth? Declares the Lord. God is everywhere. And so separation is not a word he really likes. It's not normal for him. But Eve's sin separated her from God, a necessary separation, because if, if, it did not, if God did not separate himself from her, then she would have been destroyed. It was in his mercy that he put that separation there. But think about that mother who lost her, her baby for a minute. She's 13 when she was lost, but, but imagine her back at, say, three. Three months old. That's Aiden's age, I think. How often do you think you're going to see Birgitta without Aiden? How often was that mother without her daughter? I mean, rarely would you see them apart, I bet she held her most all the time, whether it was in a pack or in her arms while nursing or um, rubbing her, her, her back or changing her diaper or, f- you know, whatever it was that she was doing. Probably, uh, like a lot of mothers do, she put her baby in the, in the crib and, and was pretty close by, maybe laying on the ground, patting her through the crib, um, uh, trying to get her to sleep. And, and when they were separate, like uh, at night when they were, uh, she was sleeping, Mom is probably wakefully sleeping, ready to hear that small cry of of the baby waking up and knowing, I need to go and feed her. 
Everything about her is centered on that child. And notice how God talks about his creation. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Yeah, they might forget, but I will never forget you. That's God's promise to us. And so when Eve rebelled and they were ripped away from God by that evil creature, God began the most involved and expensive rescue that the universe will ever know. Every aspect of God's existence was turned towards redeeming his stolen children. Every creature in heaven was given new jobs and enlisted into this rescue plan. So what's the plan? You can find it in Psalm chapter 77 and verses 2 and 3. We're going to start there anyway. He kind of develops this idea through the whole chapter. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Like, is God ignoring me? Am I in trouble like that, that girl in the, in the situation with this bad man's home? Do you think that she was wondering about her mom? What's my mom doing? Has she forgotten about me? Does she really love me? This is the question that's going through the psalmist mind, Asaph. He says in verse 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. And then he says, your way, O God, is in the holy. Or your way, O God, is holy. And that that word holy, um, it's... It could be translated holy, but in the way that it's said here, it really means the holies or the sanctuary, because that's where the holy places were, is the the sanctuary. So who is a great God like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. This is God's way. It's God's path to restoring us, to redeeming us, to finding us, rescuing us. Uh, Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. The, the problem is that we're separated from God and there's no getting back to God on our own. We've got no solution for escaping our captor. Uh, we've been captured, imprisoned, enslaved to sin, and the only hope that we have is a rescue from outside. You've probably seen a, a version of this graphic And I know it's small on the screen, but you you probably know what I'm looking at here. This is the sanctuary in the the wilderness. They called it the tabernacle. And there's all these different things. There's the the, um, outer courtyard with the fence around it. There's the um, altar burnt offering, the laver. There's the actual tabernacle, and it has a holy place with three different pieces of furniture there in the most holy place. There's lambs and priests and, and oil and light and bread and all kinds of interesting things involved in the sanctuary. I'm not going to go into great detail, but I just want to point out that the way is in the sanctuary. That's what, what um, Asaph tells us in Psalm 77. And in, in, in uh, John, Jesus says, I am the way. And notice how these things work together. There's a doorway that separates the tabernacle from the camp. Jesus said, I am the door, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You can find that in John 17, 7 and 8. And then there's that that altar of burnt offering where the lamb is sacrificed. And Jesus says, well, John uh, the Baptist first said it in John chapter 1, verse 29. He pointed to Jesus and he said, look, there's the lamb of God who takes away the sin 
of the world. In Revelation 13, 8, also describes Jesus as the lamb who was slain. As you enter that first compartment, oh, before that, um, there's the laver. And in that laver is water and there is uh, some cleansing that the priest had to do before he went into the holy place. And the Bible tells us that Jesus' blood cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1, 7 and Revelation 7, 14. Jesus' blood is that cleansing, but he also promises us the cleansing of the washing of the water and of the spirit in baptism. And then as you enter that first compartment, that holy place, just to your right, you're going to see a table with 12 loaves on it, unleavened bread. And Jesus said to the people, I am the bread of life. You need to eat me, he says, which was strange for them to think about, but it's sanctuary language he's talking about. The bread of life, it's your words. Jesus even said it to Satan that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of your mouth. He's inviting us to eat his words. And then you see on your left the golden candlesticks, the seven-branched candelabra. And that, that candlestick was always supposed to be kept full of oil and always supposed to be burning. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world in John 9, 5. And then he pointed to us and he said, you are the light of the world. He, he offers us his spirit, the oil, and his light of witness to the world. But then if you're standing there and you've got the candelabra on your left and the, the table with bread on your right, right in front of you is going to be uh, an altar. And always, forever, there is incense on that altar. Never a point when that incense was supposed to stop. And, and the, the incense represented the prayers of, of the priests as they went in to bring these sins before God and to plead the case of Israel. But the New Testament tells us that Jesus is our high priest, and it says that he ever lives to make intercession for us. It is his prayers that are coming from that altar, his prayers on our behalf, interceding for us. And then if you were to lift that curtain and go behind the curtain to the most holy place, you'd see uh, a cabinet there. And uh, it was brilliant gold, beautiful cabinet. And inside it were the tables of stone that had the Ten Commandments written on them, the law of God. And on top of it, you'd have these two, um, two angels that were covering the mercy seat, the throne of God. And on the mercy seat was the glory of God, the Shekinah glory. And when you look at uh, the story of Jesus, you find that when he died and then was resurrected, and then after 40 days he ascended to heaven, the Bible says that he went to heaven to sit at the right hand of God on his throne, right there. And Jesus, at his death, fulfilled the law that was in the, the, the Ark of the Covenant. He fulfilled it on your half and my, uh, on behalf of you and me by taking our penalty the wages of sin is death, and he took that, fulfilling the law for our, on our behalf. When Asaph in Psalm 77 said that God's way was in the sanctuary, and then when Jesus said, I am the way, they were pointing to all these different pieces of the rescue plan. Everything that God was doing to save us from our deadly situation. If the problem were just Eve, Eve made a mistake, and that was it well, then that would be a different story of rescue. But our story is deeper than just Eve. The problem includes all of humanity, and it also extends beyond humanity to the, the universe, the watching universe. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 4.9 that we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. It's not just 
people that are involved in this rescue plan. The rescue plan needs to include a lot of elements, including it, God needs to bring the people who have fled, that's Eve and everybody after her, to recognize that they have a need for him, that, that their situation is bad to begin with, and that they need his help to be saved from it. And the sanctuary reveals our condition. If we truly understand it, spend some time looking at it, we see that in contrast to Jesus, the sanctuary tells us who we are and what our problem is, and it reveals the love of God. He also needs to somehow get these rebellious people out of the bad situation that they find themselves in. And he needs to heal the brokenness that comes because of that problem, because of that, that entrapment and sin. And through the service of the sanctuary, we see uh, that God gives us forgiveness, he gives us cleansing, and he also heals our, our minds and even our bodies and our emotions from the effects of sin. He also needs to assure the watching universe that uh, bringing these rebellious children back to heaven isn't going to bring rebellion back to heaven. And the sanctuary has a component of justice and investigation that's involved with it. You want to carefully determine whether the people you're bringing back to heaven are safe to be there, right? Also, he needs to administer justice to the cause of all the evil. This evil creature that entrapped us to begin with and who continues to deceive and cause problems on this earth. You got to solve that problem. And the end of the sanctuary is that the rebels are consumed and evil leaves the universe never to return. The sanctuary includes all the elements necessary to deal with the problem of this rebellion, the problem of us running away from God. And we could spend a whole series, uh, probably a whole year of sermons talking about the sanctuary and all the different aspects of it. It's so beautiful, uh, but we need to stick to the big picture. So um, I want to take you to an idea, one of my favorite verses about the sanctuary. And it's found in Exodus 25. Let them make me a sanctuary, he says in verse 8, that I may dwell in their midst. Why? Why do you want a sanctuary, God? Because I want to dwell with them. The problem is separation. The solution is the sanctuary. The goal is that we live with God and God lives with us. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furnishing furniture, so shall you make it. Notice there's a pattern that he's showing. God designed this. So the problem is that sin separates us from God. The way of the sanctuary allows God to dwell with us again. That's the big picture. That's what the sanctuary is about. Look back to Eden. Think back about that first problem. Eve left God. And uh, in this scenario, just before the rebellion even, you see how God designed things. Um, Eden has this, um, th- this designed for Adam and Eve um, scenario. God, he made Adam and Eve with his hands, but then he made the garden specifically for them. And then even after they sent, he came walking in the garden as he must have done before to hang out with them. And they had run away from him. He comes looking for them, but they've run away. That, that's the design of e- Eden. The design is God dwelling with them, hanging out with them, spending time with them. Eden was the place that God had made for dwelling which makes Eden kind of the first sanctuary. And you see these, these pieces of the sanctuary all throughout the stories in the, in the Bible. Um, for example, look at Eden and you'll find that it has this water flowing out from Eden to, to water the whole earth. 
It's kind of like the water of life, right? Kind of like the water in the laver for cleansing. It's there to give life and to water. Um, and, and then you've got this tree with life-giving food, kind of like the, the um, 12 loaves of bread or what Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. This life-giving food is there in, in the garden, And then you see that God's presence is there. And the light of God's presence is is in the sanctuary as well, in the the most holy place. And just look through the rest of the stories. You'll see similar patterns, like uh, the story of Noah. He gets to the end of of the flood, and you find God is present there. There's a sacrifice, and there's the the promise, and there's the rainbow. God's presence is there. And then you you can look at Moses and how he encountered God on the mountain. The glory of his presence is, is there first in the burning bush, and then later when they bring all of Israel there, and he's thunder and lightning and God speaking. And then the Ten Commandments come from that mountain. And then you've got the wilderness tabernacle, you've got the uh, Solomon's temple, you've got Herod's temple, and, and then Jesus comes, and he dies, and he's resurrected, and the whole idea changes. No longer is it a tabernacle in the wilderness that we're looking at, or the forms and services, now we're seeing Jesus. And so the New Testament authors change the focus of the temple or the sanctuary, and they say the sanctuary is about you. For instance, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Or uh, Colossians 1, 27. Christ in you, the hope of glory. God's place of dwelling is with you and me. We're his temple. But then you find also that Ephesians 2 talks about the church being the temple. All of us together are like living stones, Peter says. And that this household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. As a people, as a group, we are God's temple. But there's more to the story of the sanctuary or God's way than a tabernacle made of hands or a temple made of people. And that's... It's illustrated in the fact that God told Moses to build the sanctuary after a pattern. Uh, Hebrews tells us that the pattern was based on something in heaven. There is a heavenly sanctuary. It's not just the emblems and the forms here on earth, the ceremonies, but God has actually restructured all of heaven to make this plan work. The sanctuary is really in heaven. He says in Hebrews 2, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, that's Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to, the life, to lifelong slavery. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every aspect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now let's do a little thinking. Our problem isn't the same as that 13-year-old girl. She was living in a great home, and then she uh, made this bad decision, ran off with this guy, and then realized her problem. She found a way to communicate. The police showed up. The guy was arrested. The problem is solved. I mean, there's some, some follow-up that needs to happen. But we have a different scenario. We're not like Eve. We were born in this problem. We're more like 
a kid that's born in a drug house. And we don't really know what life should be like. And uh, so we look around at the dysfunction and the brokenness and the abuse and, and we say, this must be the best there is. And uh, we even at times enjoy it. And so God not only needs to solve the problem, but he needs to wake us up so that we know there is a problem to be solved. And in order to do that, he can't just send in the police. He can't just solve the problem with might. He has to come in and become one of us, a child born in the drug house to help us to see who our father really is and to give us a picture of what life could be like if we would only accept his redemption, his, his saving. And because he came and he spent time in our drug house, right? He spent time in our problem. He's able to go back to heaven and be our advocate. He's able to be our high priest and minister on our behalf and intercede for us on our behalf. He knows us and he can advocate for us because of that. It may be... It may be unclear to some people why it was that Jesus didn't just solve the problem. He came to earth, he died, why not just deal with it then? Why not just be done with the problem, finish evil, right? You've already made the sacrifice, let's, let's get this over with. But there's a pattern that the sanctuary has, not just in the ceremonies that, that are part of the daily service of the sanctuary, but also in the feasts that are part of the yearly service of the sanctuary. And uh, so on the screen, I've got these seven feasts that are listed in Leviticus chapter 23. You can turn there if you'd like. And uh, each of these festivals points to something that Jesus is doing. And we'll just blaze through these really quick. The first festival is the Passover. You probably have heard of that before. Uh, And you can easily connect that to Jesus because Paul says that Jesus is our Passover sacrifice. Um, And it's fulfilled in the life of Jesus and his death on the cross. The second feast was closely associated with that. Passover was one day, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread began the very next day. Jesus, he observed the Passover feast on Thursday night, and then he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he began the sacrifice. He gave his life in the garden. I just want to, want to point that out. The sacrifice began Thursday night. But then on Friday, the Feast of Unleavened Bread happens. And Jesus says that his body is that bread that is broken for us. It is the unleavened bread. With no sin in it, his sacrifice was in place of ours. And so Thursday night, the Passover began. The unleavened bread happened on, or the Feast of Unleavened Bread happened on Friday, and Jesus gave his life on that Friday. And the third feast was the first fruits, which was supposed to be celebrated immediately after the Sabbath during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So the first Sabbath during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was seven days long, immediately after that was the first fruits. And guess what? Jesus begins the Passover on Thursday night, dies on Friday, Sabbath happens. And on Sunday, he's raised from the dead. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, 24, that Jesus is our, he's our first fruits. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, 23. He's our first fruits of resurrection. And it's because of the first fruit of the harvest in the spring that we can say, there's going to be a harvest in the summer. There's going to be a harvest in the fall. And it's because of Jesus' first fruits resurrection that we can say there's going to be a resurrection at his second coming. You and I can have hope in the resurrection because Jesus fulfilled this feast. 
And these first three feasts happen while Jesus is on the earth. But then Jesus hangs out after the resurrection for 40 days and he goes to heaven. And 10 days later, we have the feast of the, or the, the festival of Pentecost, or some call it the feast of weeks. And it's seven weeks plus one day, that's 50 days. Jesus rose from the dead. 40 days later, he went to heaven. And 10 days later, he gave the disciples the gift of the Holy Spirit. And because of that gift, there was a harvest. Now, the Feast of Weeks is supposed to be a harvest festival. It's the summer harvest. Not, a, not as big as the fall harvest, but much bigger than the spring harvest. And, and it's the same that happens in the Christian church. Because the Holy Spirit is poured out, thousands of people believe and are harvested to the Lord. The sixth festival, I'm sorry, this, the fifth festival is known as the Feast of Trumpets. And you have to fast forward a ways past the, uh, the Pentecost, because now we're in the fall. And in this case, we're looking at the fall of humanity, the very end of, of life on earth. And the Feast of Trumpets was a time when the, the priest would blow the trumpet as a warning. Judgment is coming, because the next, the next feast, the next festival was the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement was a really important day. If you were not right and ready for the Day of Atonement, then you had to be put out of camp and never return. That's an interesting point. You got to pay attention to that. The Feast of Trumpets is a warning for judgment to come. And we can find that that same um, type of language comes in Revelation chapter 14, when you read about the three angels' messages. And one of the first things that it says is, fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. So right after, uh, just a few days after, I think nine days after the Feast of Trumpets, you'll find the Feast or the Day of Atonement. And we, we know that the Day of Atonement has a timeline connected to it. And the timeline is found in uh, Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, Daniel chapter 9, uh, verse 24. And in those prophecies, it reveals that the beginning of a 2,300-year period started in, in 457 BC, which would take us all the way to 1844. And guess what happened 10 years before? Feast of Trumpets was 10 days before the the Day of Atonement. Uh, so once that first trumpet was blown, there was nine more days left. Ten years before 1844 was 1833. And that's when uh, a group of people all around the world, not just in the United States, but in the United States, it was William Miller that led it. A group of Millerites, they called them, believed that Jesus was coming soon. They had the wrong idea about what judgment was, but they knew that judgment was coming. And so they started to preach uh, fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. The Day of Atonement is a special feast. And if you look in, in, um, in Leviticus 16, you'll find more details about it. But in this, uh, in this feast, there was a, two lambs, or two goats rather, the Lord's goat and the live goat, the living goat. The Lord's goat was sacrificed. The sins of God's people and the high priest were confessed over that. And its blood was taken into the holy place. But the live goat was left outside, never to go into the holy place. And uh, when the priest finished his service in front of the, the Ark of the Covenant, the one time in the whole year they went into the most holy place, when he finished that service, he came out with all of the sins that had been collecting in that sanctuary. And can, he put his hands on the live goat 
and uh, symbolically um, confessed those sins over the live goat, not as a substitute or as a sacrifice, because that lamb was never sacrificed, um, but that lamb left, or that goat rather, left the camp and never returned. They went to the wilderness. There is one more feast, um, but I want you to think about this, this Passover, I'm not Passover, this Day of Atonement idea for a moment. There were only two things that left the camp on the Day of Atonement. The first was anybody who refused to be ready for the judgment, and the second was that goat. Everything else was cleansed. Think about that. There is a time coming when the judgment will be over. Right now, we're in the middle of the Day of Atonement. In heaven, Jesus is, is looking at the cases, investigating the cases to see what's going to happen. And the goal is, according to Daniel seven twenty two, that the judgment will be made in your and my favor, that it's going to be solved. The problem with sin is going to be over, and we're going to be able to go and live with God. That's the solution, to be back in the presence of God. Bring them back is God's main focus. Everything is focused on that ideal. And he will accomplish it. That's the promise. And when he does, the Bible tells us that we're going to go to heaven with Jesus and live with him for a thousand years. The last feast is the Feast of Booths. And the Feast of Booths was a time when the Israelites were to just um, hang out together and enjoy life together in tents that they made out of uh, branches from the trees. It was a temporary uh, situation. It wasn't their permanent home. Seven days, they'd hang out there. And maybe that's where we get camp meeting from. But the the Feast of Booths is meant to bring us our, our attention towards that time when after the Day of Atonement is over, there would be a thousand years of peace with God in heaven. We would be in booths. And in this case, Jesus is going to prepare them for us. In John chapter 14, he says, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. That's the whole goal, that we can be with God. But the the place is going to be temporary because ultimately after the thousand years is done, he's going to bring us back to the earth and he's going to bring the new Jerusalem with him and we'll still have the rooms that he's made in his house. But, But the Bible says that we're going to, at that point, build houses and inhabit them and plant vineyards and eat its fruit. And we're going to get to come out of that booth and, and God will give us a place on this earth, a place to enjoy for eternity. But there's, there's a, a, another problem, that last problem. What about the evil, this evil creature? Anyone who clings to sin won't be cleansed in the Day of Atonement. That, at that point, they have to leave the camp. And when Jesus comes, whoever refuses to allow Jesus to, to take their sin for them is going to hold on to the sin and therefore the punishment for themselves. And they will be sent out of the camp. It's so after the thousand years are done. The Bible describes a time when there's a last judgment and the, the wicked are completely annihilated. Sin is completely gone. And, and I believe that goat, the live goat, is talking about Satan. Not taking our sins because he's the, the redeemer, that's Jesus, but taking the responsibility for being the father of lies, 
the originator of evil. And so that is going to be put on him, and he is going to have to leave the camp and never return. Sin is going to be solved. It's going to be done. When we see this plan, when we see what God is doing, how he's reorganized everything, the great cost that our redemption has put on him, we kind of get a sense imperfectly, but we get a sense for the great love that Jesus has for us, for you. The Bible says that God is not willing that anybody should perish, but that everybody should reach repentance. God has upended the universe for you. He's changed everything so that we can be saved. And he invites us to recognize his love, to desire what he has to offer, and to accept his gift and say, I'll be saved by you. Sure, you can redeem me. Yes, I know I need your help. And he gives it to us as a gift. Would you like today to say to him, I want to go home with you, Jesus. I want to experience all the joy and all the goodness that you've planned for me. Things that are beyond my comprehension. I can't even imagine what they'll be like. But I want to be cleansed from this filthiness of my life. I want to be your child. If you want to say that, then please stand with me as we sing our closing hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross.